evening, Chapel. You guys are looking just peachy. Just peachy. It's, it's week nine of the fall term. You're going to make it. I promise you're going to make it. We are being transformed into Christ-likeness even through our homework. Amen? Amen. Can I get a witness? Just making sure. Dr. Janine McConaughey is the preacher of the evening. She's going to help us understand another aspect, another facet of the transformation process. I want to ask you to stand and sing. We're going to sing a song to the one who makes it possible. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Father, hear the praise of your people. We live because you make it so. Accept our praise, we pray. Help our hearts to hear your word, your truth. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I can see that you love that song as much as I do. Amen. I, when I got the list, and it said that that song would be before I spoke, I thought, oh, I'm in trouble. <laughs> I'm in deep, serious trouble. But I made it through, and um, it was a perfect song for what I'm going to speak about tonight. So, um, this chapel presentation that I'm doing tonight is in dedication to my parents. Uh, I'm looking around, I see so many friends. Before I get started, I just have to look at all of you because I just love being up here and seeing your faces. Uh, how many of you are going to be in my math class in winter? <laughs> be gentle. I am always gentle, and I am fun, and I get you through. So um, we will have a good time. I see some that have already been through. Do we have a good time? Do I get you through? Do I get you through? Okay, I wasn't hearing that, and they needed to hear that. All right. This chapel presentation is in dedication to my parents, Reverend Kenneth and Myrtle Jenkins, who together faithfully served God and the Church of the Nazarene for over 50 years. I have a wonderful, wonderful heritage. Kenneth was the second of eight children of the Allen and Lily Jenkins family of Weldona County, Colorado. If you don't know where that is, you just go straight east from here to where it's really flat, and you're almost in Kansas, and you're there. Myrtle was the ninth of 13 children of the Conrad and Emma Meyer family of Jasper County, Indiana. Interestingly enough, they both came off the farm, but they came from very, very different farms. My mother's uh, father was a very wealthy farmer in Indiana, and the house at the bottom of the picture is the house he built in the middle of a cornfield. My father's family was a very poor family, and uh, that's a wagon in the background that they traveled from Kansas to Colorado in. It's hard to believe that people who are related to people who sit in this room were traveling in wagons. Um, he's seen a lot in his life. Uh, they came from very different farms. They were both saved in revival meetings, and they were both called by God. Sixty-eight years ago, 
Myrtle and Kenneth Jenkins were joined in marriage on June 20th, 1941. In my father's words, they met when a group of Pasadena College students were conducting a mission service in downtown Los Angeles. The director of the mission chose Kenneth and Myrtle to conduct a service in another location. This was be the beginning of their joint service to God and his church. Obviously, the, a romantic relationship grew out of this experience. My dad says this, Kenneth couldn't preach and Myrtle couldn't play the piano well, but romance did not need either skill. <laughs> In fact, my mother, when she went to Pasadena College, uh, she showed up at the house when her brothers were headed to Pasadena College and said, you are taking me with, me, with you. You promised me and I'm going, and she did and um, she wanted to marry a preacher and she knew she needed to learn how to play the piano and and so she did the, her teacher said she had no skill but she was full of determination together Kenneth and Myrtle began four Nazarene churches plus leading many other congregations even in retirement they interim pastored my dad pastored his last church when he was in his 80s uh, since the beginning of October, my mother has been in the process of dying. Um, before this, every close experience I had had with death had been sudden and sad. Um, you would think at my age that I would have been around more people who were in the process of dying, but I just haven't ever been. And I really didn't understand that process. Uh, my mother is 94 years old. And this last month has brought me into intimate contact with in-home hospice care. Uh, my brother and I cared for her. I, I, I was there for three weeks and we cared for her. And now my brother is carrying on alone. Um, I have learned about caring for the dying, needs of the dying, stages of dying, and signs of actively dying. Sometimes, some, something about that, it sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? To be actively dying. It has been a very long journey. Robin Baker states, American culture and Western culture generally has a difficult time dealing with death and the dying. We often do not know how to interact with those who are terminally ill. In a culture that is all about this life, consuming goods and living life to its fullest, fullest death is the ultimate enemy. It is a voice we hear, but we wish to silence in our culture because its reality testifies that our, our efforts to stay young and to submerse ourselves in the pursuit of material wealth will end in a pine box or an urn. That is not good news. While we as Christians would like to think that we would not shy away from the topic of death, I'm not so sure that's true. Our generation and country has been able to move away from the topic of death, where in previous generations, it would be unusual if a mother were to have all of her children live to adulthood. And in fact, both of my parents' families had a, had, um, a, sib they had a sibling that died very young. Despite our efforts, death will come to face all of us. For some, suddenly, for others, a long process with ample time for reflection. Maybe not so much on the per part of the person who is dying, but on the part of the people who are waiting.
This has been the case for me. And so I have been, as many others along life's journey, been reflecting on life and death. Abraham Lincoln once said, and in the end, it's not the years in your life that count, it's the life in your years. And my parents have had both life and years. And uh, in fact, my dad is still driving, though he frightened me quite badly at one point when I was there. And my mother, until a couple months ago, was still quite active. Carl Sandburg said, life is like an onion. You peel it off one layer at a time, and sometimes you weep. I have found this to be very true, and will hopefully avoid it for the next few moments. In fact, I have scratched my glasses up completely by cleaning them inappropriately. I have a new pair on order, but I can barely see my notes. So, we're carrying on. I'm going to take you to two verses tonight. And in these verses, they speak to us about God's transforming power. There are two transformations talked about in the scriptures, one in life and one in death. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, our theme verse states, and we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That is in life. In death, in Philippians 3, 20 to 21, we see a different transformation. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. What is it that God does when he transforms us? Interestingly enough, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary provides us with a definition that encompasses the depth and the breadth of God's transforming power. Transformation can involve a change in composition or structure a change in the outward form or appearance, or a change in character or condition, which includes the idea of conversion. Also, there can be a mathematical transformation. <laughs> As a math teacher, I just had to have that one in there. But it can also include undergoing a genetic transformational change. In other words, God's power can change us from the inside to the outside, and inside out. Again, interestingly, the two verses we're looking at this evening cover the range of transformational changes. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, in the original language, transform indicates a change in character and refers not to the external and transient, but to the inward and real. In Philippians 3, 20 to 21, transform indicates an actual change in form or to change the figure of. The first transformation is in life, the second in death. If we look at 2 Corinthians 3, 18 again, we see that this transformation is in character and conduct. Read with me again. Read this with me. And we, who with unveiled faces 
all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Our earnest desire is for transformation. We long for it. We even sing for it. Last Sunday, as I was singing, I realized that what I was singing was my desire for transformation. The words to the chorus by Scott Underwood are on the screen. So take my heart and form it. Take my mind, transform it. Take my will, conform it. To yours, to yours, O oh Lord. Heart, mind, will. We long to be transformed. What are we thinking is going to do that? Will it be more Bible study? Prayer? Service? Or worship? Or maybe zap? We're transformed. You know that the kind like the easy button? Wouldn't that be great? God, we want the easy button. We are transformed. The first part of the list is essential, but the last one is probably very unlikely, isn't it? I was thinking about perfect conditions for transformation, and I was thinking about Adam and Eve and how they were in the garden. Could it be any more perfect? Everything was provided for them. They had, they had a job to occupy themselves, and what did they do every evening? They walked with God in the garden. Now you would think that those would be the perfect conditions for transformation and that walking in the garden with God would have helped them to never fall. But what did they do? They fell. The reality of transformation is found in Romans 5, 3 through 4. We rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. Paul is saying that we need to rejoice in the fact that suffering will transform us. I know that in my head, but my heart has not been feeling the joy these past few weeks. I know many students who have not been feeling the joy either, but the truth is, that transformation comes through trials. 1 Peter 5.10 says, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will, call him, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. I have been advising and teaching college students for over 25 years. And every picture that I put on this slide has occurred to one of my students. They have been through floods, they have been through sickness, some of them have died, some of them have had close family members die. In fact, just as I was closing up and leaving my office, I received an email from a, from a student whose father is also in hospice and not expected to live through the weekend. So, trials, trials are abundant. The transformation is not just a classroom experience. Life is your classroom. God is the ultimate teacher. And life is his classroom. Think about how he transforms. Adam and Eve were transformed by leaving the garden. 
Noah was transformed while building the ark. Jonah was transformed in the belly of a whale. Peter was transformed when he heard the cock crow. Paul was transformed on the road to Damascus. But then, just when they thought maybe the transformation was done, there was more on the way. There was never just one event that completed the transformation. Adam and Eve were transformed outside the garden through toil, childbearing, raising children, Noah was transformed while building the ark and gathering his family, being in the ark for 40 days and 40 nights. Jonah was transformed in the belly of the whale and by preaching in Nineveh and sitting under the gourd. Peter was transformed when he heard the cock crow and met Jesus on the shore. Paul was transformed on the road to Damascus and when he was transported to the desert. Some of you feel like you are on transformation overload. I understand that. I have had quite the year. Um, as I was thinking about transformation overload, I realized that it is often in the process of trusting God to bring us through the overwhelming that we are transformed. One of my students who also faced death in her family this term said in an email that sometimes normal life is not enough to change us. I thought that was very profound. I wish that it wasn't true, but I think she's right. It is a matter of trusting God during the overwhelming. Think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Talk about being overwhelmed. He was overwhelmed. He was verbalizing his struggle to trust the Father. Was there any other way besides the crucifixion for the Father's plan to be fulfilled? He was asking that, wasn't he? Is there anything in the Bible that speaks, there is nothing else in the Bible that speaks to me about the fact that he was holy God and holy human, by the fact, but the fact that he, he wanted another way. That is so human. Can't you hear us? God, is there another way to be transformed? Some of you said that about coming to NBC. God, is there another way? <laughs> That's right. What we face is small in comparison to what Jesus faced, but significant for us. I never minimize someone else's problems in comparison to someone else's problems. Our problems are our own problems, and they are significant, and everyone's problems are significant. And we continue to grow each time we go through the trials. And we are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. The transformation is not without effort on our part. In every situation in which we find ourselves, we have a choice. Our choice will take us closer to Christ-likeness or further from it. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes, Every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part that chooses, into something a little different from what it was before. You are slowly turning this central thing either into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature. To be one kind of creature is heaven, that is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness and horror and idiocy and rage and impotence and eternal loneliness. Each of us at each moment is progressing toward one state or the other. Slowly, choice by choice, we become more like Christ, but ultimately, we are awaiting our final transformation. 
and that is transformation in death. Philippians 3, 20 to 21 says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. As I watched my mother, she is basically bones. She clings to life, and she's bones. And I, and I just get excited about that verse. Can you tell I get excited? Because her weak, thin body is going, I said I wasn't gonna get off track because I'll do this, but it's going to be transformed. Amazingly enough, we do everything we can to avoid death. My father said, as we were sitting and watching her struggle, all her life she has done everything in her power to stay alive and now she can't figure out how to die. So true, it is part of the human condition. C.S. Lewis often wrote about death, and as he neared death himself, he seemed to have it figured out. The final transformation was a glorious transformation to be viewed with anticipation. Once close to the end, C.S. Lewis passed into a coma from which he was not expected to emerge. When he awoke, Lewis was rather disappointed because he, like Lazarus, raised by Jesus after four days dead, had his dying to do all over again. <laughs> My father understands this. Over 10 years ago, he almost died of cancer. He said he cannot explain it and only describes what he felt as the glory. He said he could have gone with the glory but decided to stay because of my mother. As he was telling me this, he quoted Philippians 1, 19 through 25. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. We who remain are being transformed and awaiting the final transformation, which will surely be gain for us. No wonder C.S. Lewis was disappointed. No wonder Paul was conflicted. No wonder my father wanted to go with the glory. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious body. As the songwriter says, we can only imagine. Father, we can only imagine our struggles here on earth will fade away and we will stand in your presence and worship. We can only imagine and our imagination is so weak. We really can imagine but we thank you that you give us this hope 
and that you transform us day by day and that you will transform us one final time so we can be with you in glory. Help us to cling to that hope. In Jesus' name, amen.